0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: I'm Alana Maimand, and I'm one of the hosts for the religion section of New Books Podcast. Today I have a privilege to interview Julia Watts-Belser. Julia Wals-Belser is a professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies, as well as core faculty in Georgetown's Disability Studies Program and a senior research fellow at the Berkeley Center for religion, peace, and world affairs. Her research centers on gender, disability, sexuality, and uh, also um, rabbinic literature, as well as queer, feminist, Jewish ethics, and theology. She directs Disability and Climate Change, a public archive project, an initiative that documents the wisdom and insights of disabled activists, artists, and first respondents to the front lines of climate crisis. Today we'll discuss her Loving Your Bones, Your Own Bones, Disability Wisdom, and the Subversiveness of Knowing Ourselves Whole, published in 2023. As Julia Plesko states, this is an extraordinary book, beautifully written and accessible, yet filled with scholarly insights profoundly spiritual, yet also boldly critical, fiercely angry, yet also affirming and joyous. For me, throughout this book, I was forced to think about the term normalcy and its meaning. The title of this book skillfully ushered me into a journey that challenged me to reconsider some of my own perceptions. It might take the reader by surprise that perhaps you consider yourself a compassionate person and yet you fail to notice that in some cases, your compassion is self-serving or driven by fear and desire for distance. Thank you, Julia, for agreeing to talk to me. First of all, I want to mention that the book covers many angles related to disability and what it means to be disabled. I am only focusing on a few. By the way, I need to ask you whether it's okay for me to call you, Julia, or you would like me to call you? Oh, me.
1: please, Julia. Yes, let's be on a first name basis. That <laughs> okay. sounds wonderful. Thank all right. you.
2: So let's and just, such a pleasure. Thank you. Let's just dive in. Great. I'm starting because there's so much to cover. You critique the idea that tourists speaks from a non-disabled perspective. You scrutinize the notion of so-called being fixed but then turns to be, um, when you turn to the prophet Isaiah from whom liberation happens through the erasure of disability. This erasure means transformation of our bodies and minds, so the match and non-disabled norm. But this is not what you s- seem to see. You're right. For centuries, the stories have been told and retold by commentators who treat disability as misfortune as a metaphor for spiritual incapacity or a challenge to overcome. Rather than looking at religion as a fixer, you introduced the idea of viewing religion through the lens of a grammar of imagination. Could you please talk about this? What is exactly this grammar of imagination? And could you speak about viewing religion from this standpoint and how it helped you to overcome spiritual dissonance by defining it this way?
1: Thank you so much, Alana, both for the beautiful introduction to my book, Loving Our Own Bones, and also for this great question. It is, I think you're right. I am not interested in a fix to disability, even in a broad, you know, not in a broad cultural sense and also not in a in a religious sense either. This concept of grammar of religion or theology as a grammar of the imagination is something that I've been using to think about the way disability, I'm sorry, the way that religion and religious imagination scripts and shapes and often limits some of our most deepest and most fundamental understandings about body about gender about disability, Etc right Take for one example the idea for example in Hebrew Hebrew is a gendered language so Hebrew makes a gendered choice about God and genders God as he at least in most cases in most situations. That's a very specific example of the way literal, grammar shapes and affects the way we might be inclined to think about the divine, about the infinite, right? I myself, actually, throughout the book, I work against, though many of my texts assume uh, God's gender to be known and fixed, Mm -hmm. I uh, take a different approach. um, And I also think so too with disability, less less immediately in terms of grammar but in terms of the way that religion so often gives us our sets of concepts and assumptions i think we're likely to talk about some of those together today for example the assumption that god is omnipotent that god is all powerful and can do anything and everything Part of what I do, and I want to say I want to develop a broader grammar of the imagination, is to to ask um, provocative questions about what divine power is really like, to not take for granted, for example, this assumption of omnipotence, to not take for granted um, that the obvious only good answer in response to a person's disability is to imagine a, a kind of miraculous cure, either in this world, or in the next. So in that sense, I really aim to to try to widen and deepen the kinds of possibilities we might um, hold when we think about disability, spirituality, the secret
2: so in fact what you're doing if i hear you correctly you are moving away from this literal interpretation to more creative flexible uh and as i was reading your book i have been thinking about the whole idea of, of, of omnipotent of god being omnipotent so, but you actually introduced the idea as far as i understand the way i was reading That God is not really always able, but actually is disabled too, which means that disability does not reduce his power or his or her or its or its Exactly, I'm struggling with this. Uh, Right. But basically, we are often assuming that the all powerful God is always have to be able, but you're saying, no, that's not the case. God needs help. God needs human help so but it does not reduce his or her power which i thought the question was fascinating and maybe we can talk a little bit i kind of jumped to the question that i want to ask later but i want to maybe go through this uh, right away and ask you about your understanding of god's omnipotence and how it actually relates to the disabled because i already kind of led my thoughts in the direction of questioning the whole idea why do we need to see god is always able yes beautiful beautiful thank you exactly one of the
1: things that's really important to me in this book is envisioning god as one who knows disability experience Mm -hmm. from the inside that god shares something experiences something of disability not that not simply as a kind of empathetic, but distant presence, Mm -hmm. but that God too knows something about disability in God's own experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself am a wheelchair user. And so one of the stories I tell late in the book is the, actually I tell it twice in the book, once at the very beginning and once at the end, sort of a bookend for me. Um, I talk about a moment when I encountered the first, um, the image, Ezekiel's image of the divine chariot. Mm -hmm. This is a passage that Jews read in synagogue every Shavuot, this um, extraordinary image from the prophet Ezekiel when he sees God, actually he doesn't really see God, God's self. He sees the divine chariot and he lingers a especially on the extraordinary wheels of the chariot. I had just spent the morning as a wheelchair user, right? um, Wheeling myself to synagogue. And as I was listening to the chanting, I thought it just like, it struck me, you know, God has wheels, Mm -hmm. right? God knows something about the, both, the complexity and the difficulty of navigating a world uh, that is not always built for wheels, but also something of the absolute joy and pleasure that I find as a wheelchair user and like, right, the a the, the kind of joy in a certain kind of movement that's really integral to my sense of self.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that image, that um moment of cracking open my own imagination okay, is in many ways, was in many ways the earliest Genesis of this book. It's the that moment in synagogue is one of the things that really led me to want to think differently and to think creatively about disability, biblical tradition, rabbinic, and later Jewish tradition, um, to think also with um, Christian imagery and the role of disability in contemporary culture, Mm -hmm. to really Mm -hmm. rethink. I think the question of omnipotence, of God's power, Mm -hmm. is a central part of that rethinking. Mm I myself am not so enamored of the idea of like God is the great puppet master, you know, the one who's sort of always in charge of everything and in control of everything and having ultimate power to do anything and everything. I mean, I think that this this image of God just leaves me really cold. Also, when I think about the extraordinary suffering and violence in the world I think, you know, if God really is all powerful, then like, well, there's a lot of action items right on the, on the list, you know, not to be flippant, but I think, I think for, for many, for many Jews in the wake of the Shoah, in the wake of the Holocaust, this question of how to reconcile God's goodness with God's power was a really, really crucial theological question that of course folks have answered in different ways. Mm Um, but my interest here from a disability perspective is thinking about God both as having a, a combination of great power and great need
0: mm-hmm.
1: There's a moment in the book where I say, you know, I don't think God can 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 lift a single stone in this world mm-hmm. without a human hand mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a very resonant image because as a disabled person, my own disability means that there's a lot of lifting. I mean, physical lifting Mm -hmm. that I myself cannot do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so many disabled folks know intimately this experience of, not being able to accomplish certain things that we want to get done. Mm-hmm. And we develop all sorts of tools and strategies for for navigating that. But one of the most common strategies in disability um, communities is to, you know, have an assistant, have an attendant, um, someone who does some of that physical work. And it's just been really interesting to me to think about, humankind humans right us mm-hmm. as folks who are tasked with the work of being god's attendants mm-hmm. Right? um which i talk about this in one place in relation to the moses story it's as i play it out it's been really interesting to me to think about how this might also give us an insight into some of god's own frustrations Certainly, the Hebrew Bible describes God at times as experiencing anger or frustration when humans don't do things exactly right. right? There's this famous scene where Moses um, strikes the rock right? and gets in trouble for it. He was, it turns out, supposed to like touch it gently or speak to it or like something went wrong and commentators spend so much time debating like why was it so terrible what moses did when i read that from a disability perspective with this idea of you know thinking with assistance attendant care having to always like get someone else to put the stuff exactly where i want it i think about my own human frustration about not being able to do the thing exactly the way I want it. So that when I have a person who's helping me, of course, I feel gratitude, I feel appreciation. But if I'm being honest, sometimes also, it's just deeply frustrating. It's yeah. like, I want that flower pot, three inches to the left. Right. And I, I don't know, for me, it's given, it's just been a really like interesting thing to play with this idea of, you know, sort of a way of kind of imagining this, this complex blend of, of, you know, as I think about the divine presences, both have having so much power and so little power. Mm-hmm. I think this is a way in which disability can and, dis- and disabled people's own experiences of navigating a complex space of Power in some respects, lack of power in so many other respects. I think it can give us some really interesting insights in understanding the way God's own inner life might be imagined.
2: It made me think about, there's so many thoughts were going through my mind. I was remembering your discussion about Moses as having rejoicer, revoicer, uh, you know, how we get help and how sometimes we um, object to some of the help, but I actually want to move to the question of empathy, um, because I feel that you address this issue in your Chapter 7, I believe, and you write that disability empathy is harder to handle, especially when you are on um, in ongoing proximity. And I wonder, uh, what do you mean by this ongoing proximity? And you kind of alluded to this, but I want to, talk to to hear you talk more about it. But why is it hard to handle this disability empathy? And uh, how would you further unpack the idea of this disability empathy? Because empathy, when you think about empathy, you kind of go uncritically one direction, but I think you alluded that it's not as simple. And I would like you to talk a little bit more uh, about this idea of this ongoing proximity and difficulty to handle disability empathy, if you hear me.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you. So one of the things I do quite, I spend quite a bit of time in the book thinking about the, um, the emotions that disability evokes in other people. Of course, I don't know anyone else's heart. I don't know anyone else's mind, anyone else's emotional life, right? But I certainly, as a disabled person, I have a lot of experiences navigating the way my own disability makes other people feel, or at least the way, you know, the impact of that on me. And Some of that is, as you alluded to earlier, a kind of distancing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a disgust, right? These are the sort of negative associations, the stigma, the desire to like make disability go away or to hide disability people, disabled people from view. These are, of course, a really significant part of um, of of understanding some of the ways that that ableism um, and uh, and disability discrimination unfold. But I think there's another dimension as well that deserves mm, some additional attention, and that's the role of niceness. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be clear, of course, right? in so many ways, I'm all in for niceness, right? I I would like to live in a world where we all at bedrock are kind and good and nice to each other, right? So I'm not saying, oh, let's get rid of niceness, right? Certainly not, but I'm very interested in the way disability often evokes a kind of saccharine sweetness a too much niceness, Mm -hmm. right? it's like an overcompensation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that often grates. It often makes it often feels like an impediment to real relationship. Mm-hmm. That is to say, I am most often interested in being in relationship with folks who are um, who are open to thinking with me about disability. And who recognize that disability is a significant and important part of my lived experience, mm-hmm. but who are also open to like the basic ordinariness of disability, mm-hmm. right? It's um, so um, this. I I talk in the book about what I call empathy misfires, right? Somebody means to empathize. Right? they they mean to ex- they, they mean to express a kind of um understanding or nice feeling or goodness but it's like it goes wrong um often it goes wrong when for example people tell me how courageous i am mm-hmm. um i you know i was on the subway uh, this was some years ago pre covid i was on the subway and my and just you know i was i think i was probably grading papers getting ready to turn some things back into my students and my seatmate who was apparently just like struck by the fact that i was out in the world okay um started talking about how courageous i was and how how brave you know and i just thought like it just just know, just just know, you know. That's, I think, one of the places where I feel the, um, the that's a kind of broad brush example of empathy gone awry. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it unfolds in more subtle ways. Um, for example, I have found that folks are often, folks are often really able to empathize with, um, expressions of, um, pain or regret or loss related to disability mm-hmm. in part, because those, or at least my disability, I think this might play, this plays out differently depending on the nature of disability, but here, let me, let me situate myself again as a wheelchair user. So as somebody who has a kind of very sort of stereotypically visible disability that often gets scripted in the public imagination as a tragedy, Mm -hmm. The um, question, you know, it feels like people are always dying to ask me the question, what happened to you, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, uh, So because that cultural script of disability as tragedy is so well-worn, because people are so ready to like almost already anticipating that any disability story is going to be a tragedy, a sad story, a a story about grief and loss. Mm -hmm. Any expression of my own um, difficulty immediately gets pulled into that larger cultural narrative. It's like the, the, the specifics of it get taken from me and scripted into a larger um a larger story mm-hmm. and so i have like many disabled folks often learned that it is unsafe that it's risky okay, to acknowledge um anything negative about disability mm-hmm. And I think that's actually one of the things that I'm interested in doing in the book when I think about wanting to, I think about wanting us to be able to tell more complicated disability stories. Your
2: own story, right,
1: yeah. Yes, to to read and listen to and imagine and hear and receive these stories in ways that can hold a much more complex, multifaceted mm-hmm. bundle of emotional experiences, right? So that I can, for example, have access to, right? I can, I can name some of the ways disability is connected to loss in my own life mm-hmm. without that making my entire life story nothing but tragedy.
2: Right. You know, it's interesting because when you said that somebody told you how brave you are, it's almost like, you know, the idea of, not meant to but kind of makes me think out of sight kind of like how do you even do it because normally you should be out of sight you it's just interesting to me to think how you know so in the book you mentioned something that when people see say something like I don't see you as disabled and means to be compliment but it's actually in a way kind of insult because it reduces to this kind of universalized idea of what disability is supposed to mean. And not really, you know, you addressed already this kind of universalizing idea that the tragedy is same for everyone and perhaps all of you just brave and it's the whole like bundling in together people. To me, it's really very much sounds like this kind of distancing in a sense. Uh, But also wonder, you talked about the idea in it's to me, it was really fascinating. I never thought about it, but you talk about the idea of disabled people carrying the mission of protecting abled, which I thought is fascinating because disabled, with all this questioning kind of makes me think about like all the comments people are making and they're supposedly empathy or sympathy. They're expressing in a way you are saying disabled are carrying now carrying the burden of protecting the feelings of non non-disabled yeah you know
1: Alana, that's really interesting i think this is something that a lot of minoritized folks mm-hmm. learn to do mm-hmm. it's a kind of survival skill mm-hmm. that many of us learn for navigating hostile territory mm-hmm. right we learn both how to read and assess the feelings of others, Mm -hmm. especially folks in a dominant group. Mm -hmm. Of course, we may not know the fullness of those feelings, right? I mean, these kinds of assumptions are always, um, uh, as I said, I don't have access to anybody else's inner life, Mm -hmm. right? But it is a, um, a honed skill, this ability to catch and notice and anticipate discomfort, disgust, anxiety, fear, pity, um, Mm -hmm. charitable impulses, right? And figure out how to like, how to manage them, right? How Mm -hmm. to help other people have a better experience. Um, And that of course is exhausting. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is, of course, uh, an exhausting way to move through the world. Um, I do think that it's, um, but I, I don't think this is unique to disability. Right? I think this is the power dynamics of minoritized, minoritized folks in navigating majority cultures. Right? Often learn these kinds of skills for reading. Um, both reading the room, but also reading individual interactions and putting people at ease. You know, I think about a disabled friend of mine who has a brilliant sense of self, um, of humor that he just uses so exquisitely to like navigate situations that might otherwise be really, really awkward. Um, That is to navigate other people's awkwardness right um so I think this the particular strategies vary they're not always the same mm-hmm. but that attention to um the feelings of of um of others and sort of figuring out how they might get you know used to they might be, become difficult for us. This is, I think this is a very significant kind of skill, this caretaking.
2: But it also reflects, and I think you talked about it, that you end up protecting the fears of others. Mm. And I was wondering, as I was reading, and I think you said it in the book, that basically a lot of times it's their own fears of mortality that you're trying to protect. And it's interesting, why is it that people will be charged, disabled people will be charged with protecting the fears of abled? That was, to me, again, I was thinking about what does it tell us about the society's inability to deal with parts of life, let's put it this way. Yes,
1: Yes, that's right. I think that there is... um, a broad mainstream cultural tendency mm-hmm. to imagine disability as an aberration mm-hmm. as something that's really rare mm-hmm. and deeply regrettable um mm-hmm. first i that's i that's false right i think that's just materially not true right. i see disability as an ordinary part of human experience. Of course, it is it is the case that some particular disability experiences are quite rare. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and when disability confronts us suddenly, it is sometimes sudden, it is sometimes unexpected. Okay? And so that can all feel like a big surprise. But I actually think it's very helpful for us culturally to begin orienting toward the idea that disability is an ordinary Mm -hmm. part Mm -hmm. of human experience. The disability studies thinker Rosemary Garland Thompson says disability is an essential characteristic of being human, Mm -hmm. right? It's in fact part of what makes us human, right? We, we, live with bodies. The only truth of the body is that bodies change and that life is finite. Mm -hmm. These experiences are, I think, really essential to the nature of Mm -hmm. being alive. Mm -hmm. So we do ourselves a great disservice when we think about disability as somehow um, uh, so so unexpected Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay um again of course i want to be empathetic to the fact that when when disability enters our own lives or you know it it can be quite sudden it can be quite unexpected it's just so that that experience i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that emotional experience of like wow i wasn't expecting this Mm -hmm. but if we were to to orient differently to disability as a kind of part and parcel of what human life is about, Mm -hmm. I think we would end up with more and better tools Mm -hmm. for navigating both the experience of disability but also interpersonal uh, relationships with, with disabled people. And finally, I think it would also really shift the way we were to organize social and political structures. A big part of my book argues that we have one of the reasons that we, I think we have an obligation, we must ethically rethink disability, Mm -hmm. is so that we can counter ableism, counter the kinds of structures Mm -hmm. um, that marginalize disabled people, and and ending end up denying us access, agency, resources, the ability to self-determine, all of these things. Mm-hmm. So when I think about making a world that leaves, that like takes disability for granted as an ordinary part of human experience, mm-hmm. I think if we did that, we would structure our classrooms really differently. Mm -hmm. We would imagine the work day really differently, Mm -hmm. right? We would think differently about sick time. We would think differently about healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many things that would change, Mm -hmm. Um, not just the architecture of our physical buildings, but also the more fun, the fundamental ways we structure time Mm -hmm. and pace. Mm so all of these things, I think, are really crucial. Um, when we deny disability, or when we want to hold it at bay, mm-hmm.
2: it
1: it makes us as a culture less able to grapple with the fact that um, disability and disabled people are like in our in, in the midst of everything. And here's the thing: this is another thing that I think is a really important principle of the book is that of course when we think about ableism we have to first and foremost think about disabled people right and the way that ableism particularly targets disabled folks but if we zoom out a little bit broadly ableism this idea for example that our work is our worth Mm-hmm. This is not good for anybody who has a body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this isn't good news for any of us because we all have bodies mm-hmm. that falter at times. We all get sick. Mm-hmm. We all need care, right? Of course, some of us need more care, right? Get sick more often, right? Live with chronic pain, live with chronic fatigue. What, whatever, like this? I, I, don't want to reduce it to say, like, oh, everyone's disabled. Really, no, like, but that's not my, that's not my aim. But I do think that we want to do. I want us to do both, to both hold some of the particularity of disability experiences, mm-hmm. and also recognize that. A lot of the principles and practices that drive ableism are they are bad news for, for all of us. Right? They constrict all of
0: our options. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. You
2: know, as I was listening to I was thinking there's, again, so many thoughts were coming through my mind. One thought was about people... Are not recognizing that we're if we are able we're temporarily able mm-hmm. in some point and so this inability to fully understand this it's actually our inability to understand our human experience to some degree. Yes. Uh, and I was also thinking about um visible invisible disability when maybe we can talk about it but uh I want to ask you this question you know I often think about it when people say what do you do like you just mentioned, how can we actually reformulate this question I sometimes I say to people rather than talk about what you do what your job is can you tell me what you like to do what are your hobbies what are your interests and a lot of times people stare with me like blank kind of stare like like, I don't have a hobby I don't have interest at at work it's It's such an indictment Mm -hmm. I think
1: of this idea that I mentioned right that our worth is determined by our work, All right? And this is, of course, so um, it's so difficult on so many different axes. I think mm-hmm. about how so much judgment can be laced here into the question of, you know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. That is, what's your job? Mm-hmm. That is how are you valued in um, by the society? There's so many judgments here about about um, about class that are that are coming into play about access to education about Mm -hmm. you know so all of that but from a disability perspective of course it's 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 particularly brutal because it makes a person's judgment you know a a person's worth be based on whether they fit into you know whether they can navigate the gig economy Mm -hmm. or land a you know, land a, um, a nice, good um, job that will give them a, a kind of easy answer to this question, right? So I always think about folks, um, uh, you know, who can't do that, for mm-hmm. whom that question is is really a um, often an, an open wound, um, because it it unwittingly doubles down on that, on those uh, assumptions, Mm-hmm. about who's
2: worthy right this reduced value in, yes yeah, yes when yes. you think about retired people their value becomes completely reduced too. yes and there, yes. That's why we create this communities when the retired people just in their communities versus how scandinavian countries try to integrate so the value is not reduced to cool. what do you ask retired person what do you do? A retired person will start talking what she or he did before.
1: Yes, 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 yes. Back when I was a worker, this is right, what I did. Right. But you know, I think the question that I I always love to ask people, like, what do you what do you love? What's make you know, what's You're interested in what's, right. you know, yeah. Oh, um, you know, and I think I use different different openers in different moments. I mean, um, uh you know i think the question like oh, i'd love to know you know more about what you're um what have you what have you been thinking about what interests you what um um i i think sometimes talking about um you know beauty can be interesting i think that i've had some really beautiful conversations with folks where there was a you know a question about um uh um, I'm always thinking about this in the context of of, um, of post synagogue uh, conversation, kiddish conversation right mm-hmm. where I think the question what do you do is often ubiquitous right mm-hmm. And there's um, at least in many spaces very narrow set of acceptable answers to this question um I think you know it's so interesting to think about other other ways of expressing, who we are or what moves us what interests us what we're drawn to um what what we like um, what brings us pleasure those are all things that i'd love to um use as conversation starters
2: yeah in your chapter 11 you actually talk about the politics of beauty we, you write really beautifully disability often gets positioned as and the thesis of beauty and you posit the beauty lies in symmetry and harmony of forms. Disability is not only not seen in this term, but it's also linked into immorality. This was kind of fascinating to me because, yeah, we look at some beautiful faces and you can't imagine these beautiful faces might be housing ugly bodies, ugly thoughts, not the ugly bodies, but ugly thoughts and ugly intentions. Mm-hmm. So you, you challenge this perception of beauty and you argue that for. Beauty of disability is, you write, intricate, complex, and visually satisfying. And you say that you want to reclaim beauty to take satisfaction and pleasure in the body forms you have, through ourselves fiercely and unbashingly in the joy of the flesh. with beautiful. So can you talk a little bit more about the examples of beauty, not in spite of disability, but because of it?
1: Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you so much for this. It's a great question. When I think about this um, culturally, of course, I think about the way so often uh, images of disability and disfigurement are used to, mm-hmm. um, as part of the visual iconography of characterizing mm-hmm. monsters or villains. Yeah, um, and when I think about it biblically, the first place I go is always to Leah, to mm-hmm. the wife of Jacob, who is the unloved wife. Mm -hmm. The one who, in contrast to the beautiful Mm
0: -hmm. Rachel,
1: Mm -hmm. is the one who, the only detail we get about Leia is that her eyes are rakot, her eyes are weak, delicate. Um, It's it's a little bit unclear what that means. A number of commentators have suggested that there's a visual disability here, that maybe there's something... um, going on with Leah's eyes. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that her eyes are unpleasant to look at. Um, So it's not my interest to really say like, oh, was Leah disabled or not? Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I find so fascinating there is the way we see this kind of this close connection being made between disability and ugliness or undesirability. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to challenge that. As you say, I am interested in thinking about reclaiming beauty, but in a complex way. So first, just to underscore very much, really appreciate your emphasis that this is not saying beautiful in spite of disability Mm. um, but like beauty with disability or beauty that emerges in part through disability Um, i think that you know in the um there's two conversation partners for me in the book who are really uh, really crucial the first is um disability studies scholar tobin um, tobin siebers who writes about disability aesthetics And one of the things that he names is that that this notion of beauty as symmetry is really um, quite old-fashioned, actually. Mm -hmm. If we look at the art world today, Mm -hmm. we think particularly about modern and contemporary art. We have a lot of quirky Mm -hmm. bodies, Mm -hmm. right? Symmetry, he says, it reads like kitsch it's not actually that interesting artistically. Um, I think about this too, in terms of creation, when I think about like, I'm a gardener, you know, I love to spend time in my garden. I Think about part of the beauty of a flower is not the fact that it is some like platonic ideal of a flower, you know, like part of what makes it beautiful and interesting is the intricacy of it. The fact that actually there's, it's, not a cookie cutter image of a flower, Mm -hmm. right? So, so too, I think with human beings, right? The idea that what we should value or find beautiful, I mean, so first, let me back up for a moment and say, everyone is always quick to say, oh, beauty doesn't matter. Beauty is only, only skin deep. It's what inside, it's what's inside that counts. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. If you have been judged, not beautiful, Whether because of disability or for other reasons, you know that being seen or regarded or treated as not beautiful, especially as ugly, has costs, deep costs. So I want to push back against the idea that this is that aesthetics don't matter. Actually, they're really deeply connected to Mm -hmm. issues of disgust and Mm -hmm. aversion. Um, And so in that sense, I think they're also deeply connected to disability stigma and to um, the marginalization and denial of of agency and access and self-determination to disabled folks. But so that's why I think it really matters to think differently about beauty. The other person who's a really important conversation partner for me with beauty is the disability activist and brilliant thinker, Mia Mingus. Um, And Mingus talks about the difference, the way in which beauty, especially tight, normative, constricting, hegemonic notions of what's beautiful, Mm -hmm. have often uh, been deeply harmful for disabled folks, um, they have worked against us, they have often disqualified us, Mm -hmm. I, I think of some parts of disability that are often seen as really unpalatable, right, um, drool, for example, right, like, it's, I mean, saliva is a fact of life, Mm -hmm. but it's a very stigmatized, um, thing, it's hard to imagine, like, widening the conventional concept of beauty enough to integrate that. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I think part of the work is to let go, um, to resist at least this 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 narrow kind of beauty culture. Um, mm-hmm. Mia Mingus says, you know, get rid of beauty in favor of magnificence. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I find that very meaningful, I found that very meaningful. And I'm also interested in um, widening the way we think. I, I am actually interested in thinking about disability as a kind of beauty, mm-hmm. um, an intricacy, a complexity. A, I think we, I think actually, that it's from other disabled folks mm-hmm. that I have been learning how to train. My eye, my mm-hmm. body, my way of seeing and perceiving and being with others mm-hmm. to recognize beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe the modern art, uh, maybe the modern art image here is actually or metaphor is actually useful insofar as it it, it can take viewers time to come to understand to sort of learn the artistic grammar mm-hmm. of contemporary. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, of how contemporary art unfolds to really begin to see the the um the gorgeousness the the it it requires a different kind of looking maybe a learning to look differently um and so i'm interested in bringing that into disability right i think disability is something that might also sort of teach us more um more interesting, generative ways of um, perceiving and recognizing beauty.
2: So you're suggesting that um, basically what you're suggesting is reconsidering the way we train our eye in some way. And, you know, I'm thinking about when I look at Chagall's, for instance, paintings, none of them are symmetrical. So I know you mentioned Picasso in the book, but even And I don't think that Chagall was intentionally trying to point some kind of disability because the idea of disability is already questioned in a sense. So when you Mm -hmm. create art, you're not trying to create this perfect symmetrical figures. And so and um, so I think. To me, what you're saying is reconsidering our understanding of normalcy, beauty, and also holiness in a way. So actually, you know, I want to talk a little bit to hear for you to talk a little bit about the whole idea of normalcy. How do we create this idea of normalcy? Who are those normal so-called people? Right, right. Who are they? It's such a great question. Um, Can we even
1: identify them? I think that I'll go back to Rosemary Garland Thompson again, disability studies theorist whose work has been so formative in the field. Uh, She has a concept called, um, she took this concept of, you know, normal people and she uses, she coins the term normate (laughs) To give it like, it's like normal in quotes, you know, the normate is this notion that we have, right? This sort of imaginary notion of the, um, I think it's actually really interesting and provocative to think about whether this is the normal or the ideal person, because uh, technically when we're talking about, you know, normalcy, there's a way of reading normal that means it's like the average, the everyday. But actually, I think in in our in in our conventional discourse, we sometimes use normal that way, oh, this is what everybody's experience is like. Mm-hmm. This is a sort of universal. I think this is always false, right? I'm very skeptical of this move to assume that like the 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 quote unquote, everyman, you know, experience, uh, which has just been so, so critiqued. I mean, even when I say that, I can't say it with a straight face, every man, you know, the gender critique obviously um, is so present there. Uh, the way in which whiteness is so often seen as normative. Mm-hmm. Right. But it, it's it's like so so that's all um uh there's something really uh, um messed up
0: going on here,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Um and we don't even but, know who are those whites today. Yeah, but then the normal, right? Mm-hmm. The the normative also shades into this notion of the ideal, ah, the thing you want to be, yeah. or at least mm-hmm. some people want mm-hmm. to be, right? That that thing that you should aspire toward, right? And so I think it can be actually really helpful to tease out the way in which we often imagine the quote unquote normal as the desired, desirable space. The
2: aspiration.
1: <laughs> um, the aspir yes, exactly, the aspirational space. Mm-hmm. And of course, um one of the things that's so important about Darlene Thompson's concept of the normate is that um I, I think she is really skeptical about whether anyone ever gets to like actually if if someone ever inhabits that that space, they certainly don't inhabit it for long.
2: So it's a plastic right. soldier
1: space. I mean it's a it's a, you know I mean this is just not actually um a a and th- this has been borne out by my experience of speaking with folks about disability. I think that once we begin thinking about disability, people often um people who are non-disabled nonetheless Often start to realize that there's some significant, there's some affinities, there's some kinships, there's some, some. It's a, it's a complicated. Um, I mean, bodies are complicated, minds are complicated, right? Uh, we haven't really spoken a lot about um, neurodiversity, mental difference, but mm-hmm. this is also another yeah. huge realm of um, disability that's really
2: significant to think about, really, right? Yeah
1: in terms of recognizing the fact that this sort of ideal notion of um the I mean, what do we even mean if we think about the normal mind yeah. i mean what is that even you know so it's it's um and yeah, yet, yeah, I'll and yet right. yeah, yeah. the mm-hmm. world is um right we can in some ways talk about this as a as a um as a kind of fantasy but it's a fantasy with teeth right i mean if you if you live sufficiently outside the space of the Mm normie then you know it costs so much to not fit that those expectations
2: you know Um, where i was recently told was really interesting conversation about talking about uh neurodiversity how we respond and i had a conversation with somebody who's a psychologist actually and i said to him i always say what i think i'm always truthful i don't know how to lie and i was kind of jokingly said maybe i'm autistic and he takes his pad when he was writing and shows it to me and it's circled question maybe she is autistic
1: i think this is so significant here in terms of thinking about the way that um the the recognition of disability is so often foreclosed, right? Because disability mm-hmm. is so often pathologized.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? I was just and kidding, and it's actually exactly it becomes.
1: Now, of course, again, I don't want to move into the space where people say, "Oh, we're all we're all disabled," really, right? Yeah. I think that's dangerous as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I want to recognize here the the kind of um, the messiness, but also the salience of disability mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. category mm-hmm. and not not erase that. Um, but I also think it's so significant to realize that once we start paying attention to these questions, and once we begin to allow to allow ourselves individually, but even more, I think, culturally, the space to ask these kind of questions, to notice these kinds of affinities. Mm-hmm. I, I think then it also opens up more space to imagine ourselves, right? Through the, like, in relation to kind of having some disability affinities. Mm-hmm. Um, when disability is something that, that, you know everyone is running from except those of us who can't run fast enough or far enough right yeah. then you know it just then it's sort of um that's that's the kind of scenario where it's like disability is the thing you don't want to um you know you want to disown it you want to push it away and i think we we harm ourselves mm-hmm. we we are harmed by a culture that has taught us that that's, the, that that's the only way to go.
2: Yeah, and normalcy is not the finest. Uh, so I want to actually turn to your chapter 10 when you talk about Jacob and the angel and you focus on the issue of the brilliance of disability difference. Uh, yeah. I was always fascinated by the whole idea of difference. That's one of my kind of areas that I'm always thinking about. So you write about Jacob's slump by terming it not a tale of tragedy, but rather the story of how the patriarch acquired his disability, which is inextricably intertwined with his spiritual unfolding. And you then problematize, question the whole idea of wholeness. We didn't really talk much about wholeness, but I want to return to this. And so when you write that Jacob has integrated disability into his identity, uh, because he has allowed himself to be changed by the angel's touch. So here I want to talk a little bit to hear your thoughts about your understanding of wholeness that includes this idea of human agency, basically, when you're saying allowed to be changed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much. So this question about wholeness in relation to Jacob's story is um, is comes from um, a verse in Genesis. Well, one of it's, I mean, there's so much that's going on in Jacob's story that I find really, really Mm -hmm. interesting from a disability perspective, Mm -hmm. the limp, the relationship with the angel, right? This extraordinary connection between these two bodies. Um, But Jacob's limp, which I see as really really significant marker of both personal transformation and spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's utterly bound up with the way that Jacob becomes who he is. Um, it's bound up with him getting his name, Israel, the one who is a wrestler with God. Right. Okay? Um, you know, we could say, yeah, he's a, he was a wrestler. And because of that, he's a limper. And, okay? mm-hmm. um, but the question of how Jacob's limp, how lasting, how significant Jacob's limp is or should be seen to be, is a kind of um uh is a question that occurs for that that is raised by many of the um traditional commentators. There's um in Genesis thirty three eighteen. 18, there's a verse um where the Torah, the Bible says, um Jacob arrives safe, Shalem, in the city of Shechem. Um, so that term shalem can mean peace, it can mean safe, it can also mean wholeness. Mm-hmm. And um there's a there's a midrash that picks up on this that I find really difficult to from a disability perspective. It says, What does it mean when Jacob is described as Shalem? It means that he is restored to right relationship with his family. He is, um, he's, you know, whole with his family. He's whole with his, his learning and he's whole in body. That is to say his wound or his limp is no more. Mm -hmm. And that really frustrates me. It, it, I think it's, um, I think it's a moment where the Midrash and Rashi, a very significant, um, influential medieval Jewish commentator kind of picks up this Midrash and canonizes it in his um, very influential Torah commentary. Uh, I think it's a moment where we see them want to flinch away from disability, not imagine Jacob as having any, not imagine not allowing there to be any lasting physical consequences
2: of this Yeah moment. the idea of that the idea of wholeness requires to be fixed. Exactly, exactly. Somehow or another we've
1: mm-hmm. got to get Jacob all fixed okay. up um mm-hmm. so that he can you know stride in safe and sound um like a uh, like a good patriarch. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that he's um my reading, the reading that interests me most, is one where Jacob's wholeness comes not from the fix, right? I imagine J- Jacob limping for the rest of his life, right? Mm-hmm. But by integrating disability experience into his sense of self. Mm-hmm. So not by erasing disability, but by allowing disability in. Mm-hmm. That for me is a move toward wholeness. That look doesn't have to be about like liking disability or 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 Mm -hmm. holding it up as like a badge of honor or anything. No, it can be a much softer, much more delicate, intricate, intimate experience of saying this is part of my life story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of the scar. um, I think about the way that. Uh, disability cultures. Some of the some folks in disability culture that I know are really um, honoring, reckoning, recognizing scars mm-hmm. as part of like part of a story of survival, part of a story of a life, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think for me, this is a different kind of well it's taking us back in some ways to the the conversation we were having about beauty mm-hmm. but i just think it's really um really thin and really kind of unimaginative quite uncreative to imagine that the only route to beauty is sort of like symmetry mm-hmm. in the same way i think to imagine a wholeness is only coming about through like um sort of mythically perfect Mm -hmm. unblemished body what even is that Mm
2: -hmm. you know you think about judaism as mosaic tradition about moses being the most important character one of the most important characters and how often we kind of skim and don't want to acknowledge his speech impediment right it's so interesting to me so we're mosaic tradition and yet he is speech impairment is something that either we want to overlook or we want to fix too. Yes. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. I think that this is, you know, part of what I'm interested in thinking about and loving our own bones is that disability is a huge these experiences of difference, disability, they're they they run through so many biblical stories. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean as you say with Moses, like it's it's open up the Bible and disability is everywhere once you start looking for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, too, with life, right? I mean, I think it's actually that way in our family stories as well. Mm -hmm. It's that way in our, you know, I mean, that once we begin, um, like, turning toward disability, then we begin to see its significance in so many different relationships Mm -hmm. and in so many different narratives. But I think that we often have a very uh, limited repertoire for thinking about what disability might do Mm -hmm. in a story, right? right? Um, If it's always only the tragedy to overcome um, or the obstacle, the impediment you know, uh, like in Moses's case, oh, the thing he's got to be over, he's got to, he's got to overcome in order right. to, to, to give that grand speech in Deuteronomy. It, it just really, um, it, it gives us a very constricted uh, palette for understanding what disability might, might, um, might do. In our lives and also in our culture.
2: I want to briefly talk and we probably need to start wrapping up because I don't want to exhaust you, but I want to talk just briefly about the difference between visible and invisible disability. Yeah, um, sure,
1: sure. So in throughout the book, I use a very is um, uh, a broad Definition of disability that includes um, sensory disabilities, physical disabilities, um, mental health disabilities, um, neurodivergence, neurodiversity, cognitive disability, intellectual disability, things like depression, anxiety. You know, so disability is a very broad and quite internally diverse category. One of the ways folks sometimes try to make sense of this category is to split it into two parts, right? To say, oh, there's visible disabilities and invisible disabilities. I actually want to to problematize that distinction a little bit because I don't actually think it it works quite so neatly. Um, But I think there's also dimensions of it that are really can can be helpful for under for, for thinking through some different dynamics. So if we, if we think about, um, I prefer a framework where we think about, you know, when disability is apparent and when it's not apparent, um, it's actually contextual in certain contexts, my disability as a, in certain contexts for certain sighted people, Mm -hmm. my disability as a wheelchair user, right? My disability is highly visible. Mm -hmm. Um, but most disabilities are not immediately apparent. The um, vast majority of disabilities are not sort of always immediately um, knowable, even even in a kind of face-to-face context with two-sided folks. Right. And
2: um,
1: dismissed. I'm sorry? And dismissed. Yes. Exactly.
2: And because
1: of that, okay, so one of the ways in which I think the visible invisible difference or the apparent non-apparent um, distinction can be helpful, is that it can help us think, not a, not so much as a way of categorizing different types of disabilities, mm-hmm. but it can help alert us to the way that when disability is not visible, when it's not apparent, um, there is often an additional burden placed upon the person, of disclosure mm-hmm. um and especially if um and so that burden of disclosure of having to you know time and again both say that one is disabled but also often prove um, that one's disability is worthy of attention or accommodation Or justify something. Exactly, exactly. This pervasive tendency by culturally, this pervasive tendency to um, not believe people about their experiences and we see this especially around questions of pain and fatigue Um, we this, it dovetails also, it's sort of intensified by a lot of um, gendered dynamics of not believing women about their own um, about our own lives um, or experiences but especially when we see uh, so this this dynamic of sort of who is given credibility to speak about their own um, experience whose experiences are marked as believed and believable um mm-hmm. Who's, you know, also, you know, whose disabilities are perceived as like too much trouble, uh, too difficult to accommodate all of these dynamics. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why I think we have to be careful here is that, of course, v- so quote unquote visible disabilities, like myself as a wheelchair user, people look at me and see me and my wheelchair and make all sorts of assumptions about the nature of my my own disability and my own life, many of which are also inaccurate, okay? Mm -hmm. So I've had people like strangers be really upset
0: with me, like
1: angry Mm -hmm. at me when I move my legs, because in their mind, as a wheelchair user, that means I'm paralyzed, okay? That's
2: not my disability, but- They think you're a fraud. Yeah, a fraud yeah, or yeah. just like, it's just wrong, you know, and it's like, well, you know, who, who are you? But, but it oh.
1: happens often enough to, that it's oh. really worthy of comment. This assumption that you can, quote unquote, kind of like read a disability by looking, read a body by looking, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. plays out in very unfortunate ways for, across a wide variety of disability experience. Um, so I think that, um, there can be all sorts of, pro- you know, different kinds of projections that yeah, get made onto bodies. we didn't talk bodies. about the
2: question, sorry to interrupt, we didn't talk about the question, I don't want to go this direction, I just want to mention the sinfulness oh yeah this yeah. is i don't even want to go in this direction yeah yeah no no I, I hear you yes yes it's a whole other dynamic right. that idea yeah. that there's a sort you of just reminded, story right yeah you yes. just remember me you moved your yes. foot and there's something yes. wrong with you but something also, wrong with yeah, you yeah but also like you're
1: doing disability wrong
2: right Right? I mean, this is ludicrous, of course, when we say it like, it
1: like this, yeah. right? The okay. same thing happens for ambulatory wheelchair users. So people who use a wheelchair um, part of the time, but who can also on occasion stand mm-hmm. or walk a few steps, mm-hmm. right? Like people get the public, the yeah. random strangers, like get incensed and outraged about this. Mm-hmm. Um I think the disability studies scholar Ellen Samuels has done extraordinary work investigating the phenomenon that she calls the disability con, right, huh. and the idea that fraud, right, is such a deep part of disability experience. So I would just, if folks are interested in in um, thinking along those lines, I would I would recommend her book Fantasies of Identification. <laughs> um, but that that idea that you know you only are allowed to do to sort of exercise a, a very narrow range of motion literally in this case um is it's another dimension of that it's another manifestation of that idea that um disability is only allowed to only granted credence if it if it it's grudging credence yeah with that but only if it um, fits a very, very narrow yep. little box.
2: Wow. All right. So, um, thank you so much. I want to ask you a very last question again because uh, I can keep asking probably till we could end of next week. We could have a long conversation <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. So, what I want to ask you, my last question is what are your hopes for this book in terms of its reception, not, but, but not just by disabled people, but also by Tempor- temporarily abled.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I really do hope that this is a book that is um, is resonant for and meaningful to um, a lot of different folks, regardless of whether you know, mm-hmm. certainly, I think in many ways, I wrote this book as a love letter to, um, to disability communities. But I think about it as a book that is also written with deep love and invitation to um, all of us, right? To all of us who have bodies. Um, I think that I hope to open up conversations about more spacious conversations about disability and religion. Um, and I'm also really, really excited to think both about, um, new ways of understanding the place of disability and disabled, the kind of provocative place of disabled people and Um, uh, disability experience within secret text, within biblical text and tradition, but also for imagining new ways of thinking uh, ethically and theologically about Mm -hmm. disability. I like to think about this as a book that is both kind of opening up New possibilities for grappling religiously and spiritually, but also for uh, but also as a book that's asking us to think differently about our politics, mm-hmm. to think about building and fashioning a world that is more welcoming accepting. and more accepting and more deeply um, embracing of disability experience.
2: What is your students' reception to your work in your? Teaching? I have I have wonderful students, and so many of them I find
1: the students are so hungry, so hungry for this kind of work um, that it speaks to them deeply. Often, as folks who are really being socialized into a fast-paced, um, mm-hmm. high-performance culture, um, mm-hmm. that the kinds of work that I talk about, particularly in the the um, the the chapters on ableism on on um, Shabbat and the radical power of rest that these rethinking's of um, of disability in both pragmatic political and spiritual terms that yeah I'm I'm I feel very very fortunate to say that yeah it's been it's been really beautifully received.
2: Yeah, your chapter on Shabbat is beautiful. Really beautiful. I actually copied a few and I shared with my students as well. So. Oh, thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Anything else you feel like you wanted me to address and I somehow... Oh,
1: this was so beautiful. It was really, really just a joy to be in conversation with you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.